five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Cube Podcast. Today we've got a special episode with Canadian space exploration historian Chris Gaynor. This past week, Chris was a guest on the Future in Space Operations teleconference. The topic of Chris's talk was Hubble Space Telescope's contribution to servicing spacecraft on orbit. For anyone interested in on-orbit spacecraft servicing, Chris's research, which will soon be published as a NASA special publication book, should be essential reading. The Hubble Space Telescope wasn't designed to be serviced. And yet, when critical problems arose, new techniques and plans were conceived which led to multiple servicing missions. The hard lessons learned in the servicing of the Hubble Space Telescope shouldn't be forgotten. Listen in. And then, um, Chris, the floor is yours. Well, th- thank you very much. Um, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a, a little intimidated by this group because I think there's a, a lot of people here who know as much, if not more, than I do about uh, about this topic. I'll just uh, say a little bit uh, about myself. Uh, I... Um, I'm a historian of technology specializing in space exploration mainly with uh, uh, some in aviation. And actually my area of expertise is more about the years that uh, uh, between uh, World War II and, uh, and Sputnik. But I uh, was always uh, interested, like a lot of people, in, uh, in the uh, Hubble Space Telescope. And, uh, and in fact, I, uh, I, uh, studied for my PhD under Robert Smith, who wrote uh, the book about the uh, uh, construction of HST, and that's in in my list of references, uh, 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 reference works at the end. So um, uh, I've been uh, working on this book. I started about five years ago, and. Uh, uh, along the way, I, I made a lot of friends, including some who are here today. Uh, for example, Harley and uh, and uh, Jennifer Wiseman and Ken Carpenter. And I think the uh, the first uh, uh, astronaut who who I spoke to in, while working on this book is here, uh, Joe Tanner. Uh, we had a great afternoon together when I was in Cal- in uh, Colorado a few years back, and. Uh, in my backyard, as I recall. That's right. It was a really nice day. Um, and uh, uh, so anyway, the book is is uh, the book I've been working on, which is a history of Hubble operations, basically, uh, which was commissioned by uh, uh, NASA Goddard, uh, is now in production. Uh I just I just saw the uh, mock-ups of the cover uh, recently, and uh, it's a it's a really good cover. And hopefully the book will be out uh, uh, around the end of the summer. And it, as I mentioned earlier, uh, it's being published by NASA, so you will be able to uh, to buy the book. But also, it will be available as a free download from the NASA History website. So. Uh, um, 
So even if even if the printing gets held up by the coronavirus, I think there's a chance it will be still available in that other form uh, fairly expeditiously. So uh, I, and uh, by the way, if if anybody wants to uh, comment in in the in the course of the talk, that's that's uh, fine with me. So uh, um, so I thought I would start off um, with uh, slide number two. Which is just uh, a lot of the uh, basic facts uh, about the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, I don't, uh, you know, some of you will need this more uh, more than others, but uh, it uh, it had been uh, thought of for a long time, and and uh, you know, nearly a hundred years ago, Airman Obert talked about it, and then in 1946, uh, Lyman Spitzer wrote the paper. Uh, that, that kind of set the uh, some of the more detailed ideas about uh, something like Hubble. And Hubble, of course, was not the first space telescope. Well, we had several others before it, like uh, the orbiting astrono uh, astronomical observatory and things like that. And uh, but anyway, uh, the f formal work and approvals for Hubble began 1977 when it. Uh, uh, got a, a approved by uh, Congress, and and um, and I'll just mention that the ESA is involved with Hubble as well for uh, roughly about 15 percent uh, uh, of the contributions and and the uh, uh, observing time on Hubble. Although uh, I think uh, Europeans would mention that that. Uh, in the, the merit-based process they have for setting out uh, uh, time allocations for Hubble, they uh, they get more than 15%. So they, they've actually never had to call that into uh, uh, action, you know, that they have a minimum 15%. Uh, it, Hubble uh, had a very uh, difficult gestation. The late... 70s uh, and the 80s, of course, were a time of budgetary difficulties uh, on various levels. And uh, and then in the case of Hubble, uh, you had uh, two centers involved in its uh, creation. Uh, Marshall was the lead center, and uh, Goddard uh, was uh, supervising the creation of the science instruments. And, and once Hubble got into orbit, uh, the... Uh, Responsibility for for the spacecraft was handed over to uh, Goddard. You also had a couple of uh, major contractors. Um, Lockheed uh, uh, built the uh, support systems module, uh, and uh, and Perk and Elmer built the optical telescope assembly. And of course, the whole thing was uh, assembled by Lockheed, um, and. Uh, so anyway, uh, uh, finally in uh, in 1990, it was launched after several uh, delays, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that just uh, in a couple of minutes. Uh, uh, slide number three, uh, just uh, just a, a quick look at at, at how uh, how Hubble operates. Uh, it it uh, Uplink and downlink goes through uh, Tedris, as so many other things, and the control center is at uh, 
at Goddard, and uh, uh, but the science operations are run out of the Space Telescope Science Institute uh, in Baltimore, just uh, the half hour uh, or perhaps a little bit more, depending on the traffic, uh, by car uh, from Goddard. And uh, um, and and then um, on slide number four, we have a, a, a schematic of of Hubble, and uh, um, you can. Uh, uh, I think what I will point out is is on the left side, you'll you see the uh, uh, the axial instruments there, which. Uh, uh, when they're uh, uh, taken out, uh, they're they're the ones that can, were designed to be uh, changed out. Uh, they kind of look like phone booths, and then uh, above is the uh, uh, where the radial is, instruments are. Now, three there's four four of those. Uh, uh, three of them are fine guidance sensors, and uh, and one is uh, is a camera. And uh, they are located under the uh, the main mirror. Uh, the the light enters from the top, it goes off the main mirror and then to a secondary mirror and then through a hole in the main mirror down to the uh, instruments at, at the bottom, uh, at the left there. Uh, uh, slide number five is uh, uh, a list of all the various instruments. That have uh, been on uh, on Hubble during its 30 years of operations. Uh, on uh, in just a, a month, a month today, um, it will be uh, uh, 30 years since Hubble was deployed from uh, uh, from the, the shuttle, um, which is actually twice what what uh, they were planning for at the beginning. So it's it's quite a landmark. Um, I imagine there were going to be some celebrations, which will probably be uh, affected by uh, a coronavirus. I hope they take place later in the year, and maybe I'll be able to take part in them with my book. But anyway, you can see here that uh, there have been a lot of uh, different instruments on board Hubble, and I've noted the times that they were uh, on board uh, Hubble. And so... The Hubble uh, Space Telescope that we have today is actually quite different from what was launched. The instruments that are there today are much more powerful than uh, than uh, the original set that was uh, on board Hubble when it was uh, launched 30 years ago. Um, Quick question: You have F dates on some of these, like uh, the CoStar. You say only goes to 2009. What, what do you mean by that? Okay, it it, it was removed uh, during uh, servicing mission four. So, yeah, the ones that were there from 1990, they were uh, they were there when uh, Hubble was uh, launched in 1990, and then uh, and then you see then you see uh, you know for example right at the top. Uh, you see the wide field planetary camera, and then it was replaced on servicing mission one by uh, 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 the wide field planetary camera two. Or, uh, uh, or for example, uh, 
you see the uh, uh, under spectroscopy, you see the faint object spectrograph and uh, till 97, and then in uh, uh, 97, it was a this uh, uh, was put on board by uh, by Joe Tanner and his uh, his friends on the uh, uh, servicing mission too. So that's that's kind of how that works. So um, um, and I'm going to uh, walk through the various servicing missions in, in a minute. Does that does that help you? No. Well, I'm actually curious. When when Coastar was removed in 2009, which is what this implies, was it then a part of the Wide Camera Three? Uh n- no. Uh, uh, maybe. Um, well. Basically, CoStar, uh, CoStar, uh, uh, carried mirrors on it, which, uh, which, uh, adjusted the, the, the light going to the various instruments to deal with the spherical aberration on, uh, in the main mirror. And over time, when new instruments were put in, uh, they were designed to compensate for the, uh, uh, spherical aberration within the instrument. So actually, well before 2009, uh, CoStar wasn't wasn't needed anymore. So um, so they could just they could just put in uh, uh, another instrument into that slot. So and okay. we'll get we'll get to that in uh, in a minute. So uh, if I can interrupt here for a second, you can see CoStar. It's in the Smithsonian Air and Space. That's right. Uh, along with uh, with Pit Two, uh, which uh, which took a lot of the really famous uh, images that uh, that Hubble is is famous for. So uh, uh, actually, I actually I had a uh, in an earlier version of this uh, this show, I had a picture I, I took myself of CoStar uh, at the Smithsonian, but I took it off to kind of uh, uh, make the the file a little smaller. So anyway, uh, we're into slide number six now, and um, um, and while Hubble was being built, there was various ideas about uh, where uh, where uh, changes and uh, and repairs should be made. At first, they were thinking about doing it on the ground, and as time went on, uh, NASA thought more it made uh, more sense to just design it so that it could be serviced on orbit and not bring it back. Uh, there's a whole lot of reasons for that. The great expense involved in carrying it up and, and bringing it back, um, the danger of contamination back on Earth, uh, the danger from the vibrations you have during launch and reentry, uh, and also uh, also the idea that uh, you know if you bring it back and, and somebody decides to save a few bucks, uh, it might not make the return trip into space. So uh, uh, eventually they just decided that it would be uh, uh, launched once and serviced on orbit. Um, and uh, uh, th- th- this this tied in with a, a lot of ideas that were uh, circulating around about uh, uh, servicing satellites in space with the space shuttle and perhaps saving money uh, with that capability, and also by uh, launching satellites that r- relied on uh, 
kind of common modular uh, structures. Uh, uh, Frank Seppolina at Goddard uh, was uh, talking about that in the uh, 1970s, and uh, and of course when when Hubble got going and and there was talk about servicing on orbit, he was interested in that. Um, but um, anyway, uh, we get into the into the 1980s, and the, the shuttle starts flying in 1981, and and. Uh, uh, and we we get into into uh, missions uh, uh, such as uh, the Solar Max mission in 1984, uh, which involved uh, doing repairs on the uh, the Solar Max uh, satellite, and uh, that was when they were using the the uh, the, the full uh, astronaut maneuvering unit to retrieve it, and. That 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 mission had a lot of problems because uh, the the grappling tool they had uh, they carried with them on the AMU uh, wouldn't connect to the satellite and they had a heck of a time uh, wrangling the the satellite and getting it into the payload bay for servicing and uh, uh, and they realized that uh, uh, they weren't doing enough. Uh, uh, preparation for that, that they said, oh, well, here's the engineering drawings and we'll use this to, to uh, design the grappling fixture. And then they got up in orbit and found out, well, actually the real thing was a little different from, uh, the engineering drawings. So things like this were going on. And, uh, and then, uh, at the time, of course, prior to the, uh, 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 Challenger, uh, accident, uh, uh, the plan was to, to launch Hubble in 1986, and uh, uh, so uh, the, the first the first crew was uh, was uh, the, uh, for the Hubble deployment mission was already at work in 1985, and, and a couple of people uh, in that mission were uh, uh, Bruce McCandless and uh, and Kathy uh, Sullivan. Now, uh, uh, when, when they were assigned to that mission, they both had, uh, EVA experience. Uh, uh, and of course, McCandless was famous for being the first person to use the AMU. Uh, and, uh, and while, uh, in a nominal deployment mission, they would not have to go out and do any work on the, uh, telescope, they, uh, they, they realized that that might happen. And and so they uh, they did a lot of uh, work preparing for such an eventuality, um, and uh, they also uh, uh, began to think about well, what about the what? How about the folks who are coming after us uh, and and are 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 doing the servicing and what preparations have been made for that? And uh, they found that the some of that work had not been perhaps done as as much as it could have been. Uh, for example, uh, uh, Goddard really, or, or at least that was their perception, that Goddard really hadn't jumped in with both feet into into uh, preparing for servicing until uh, uh, because they uh, did not kind of have full control of the project uh, prior to uh, Hubble being launched. And uh, so 
they, uh, uh, McCandless and Sullivan, uh, did a lot of work, uh, uh, with, uh, um, uh, who was it? Ron Sheffield, I think was his name. Um, who, uh, uh, to learn about, uh, how Hubble was designed and look at it, uh, from a, a view of astronauts coming in to service it. Uh, and, uh, and of course, as, as things turned out because of the, uh, loss of the, the Challenger, they had a lot more time, uh, to work on that than they, uh, had anticipated. And, uh, uh, but, uh, for example, they, they found that things like, uh, the, the foot restraints that, uh, uh, they would use when they were working around the telescope. Uh, usually one of them would be on the, uh, the, the, re- the Canada arm or the shuttle remote manipulator system and, uh, and then other foot restraints elsewhere. Uh, but they weren't adequate. So they redesigned them and suggested things like, uh, uh, you know, some changes to, to make it easier to access certain, uh, instruments and even labels. Uh, uh, in certain places inside the telescope to make it easier, uh, for, uh, for astronauts. And, uh, so anyway, in the event in 1990, their mission STS-31 on Discovery finally flew. And, uh, uh, and what happened is that one of the, uh, solar panels, uh, did not un- unfurl properly at first. And so, they went. They were down in the airlock and were within a, a few minutes of actually going out to open it, when uh, uh, mission control finally figured out a way to uh, get get that uh, uh, solar array to unfurl. So they were. They actually did not see the deployment that they had worked so hard on because they were down in the airlock, um, and. Uh, 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 but that that wasn't the end of the story for them. Now neither of them were uh, assigned to a servicing mission. Actually, Bruce McCandless re- retired shortly after that because he'd had a long career. Uh, but he was he was actually quite involved in in uh, dealing with uh, the uh, the mirror problem, helping people figure out how to uh, uh, overcome the spherical aberration problem, and and then. It, Kathy, Kathy Sullivan um, uh, recently wrote a book called Handprints on Hubble, and it's on it's on the, the last slide, which which talks of it's it's her astronaut memoir. But interestingly enough, it focuses on her work on the ground uh, with Hubble uh, as much as much if not more than uh, her uh, exploits. And uh, I think she had three missions uh, uh, on the shuttle. So uh, anyway, we'll uh, go to the uh, uh, slide number seven. Chris? And uh, Chris? yes, yes, Harley. Now, but before you leave six, I've got two questions uh, which may require more elaborate answers. At this time, maybe little um, short um, answers. One is, I read your uh, interview with uh, with Seppi in the recent issue of Quest, 
and CEPI in discussing the, the initiation or the early days of, uh, of satellite servicing refers to, now I can't, can't remember the guy's name, you know, the senior NASA administrator that's, that declared that big, our big satellites will be serviced in space. That will be the way they are designed. So question, well, actually, question 1A is, Remind me of the, the name of the NASA administrator, but the more serious question is, although Seth even thinking about this and so on, where did this net, where did the NASA, uh, I say it wasn't, it wasn't the administrator, but it was one of the senior administrators. Where did he come up with this idea? The way Seppi describes it, it's like out of whole cloth. Um, and the, um, actually, no, I forgot this. Oh, I know. The second question is, there was when I worked for SEPI several years ago, it was commonly stated, and was it true or not, that as uh, despite the request or the edict from this um, yet-to-be-named senior NASA uh, fellow, um, JSC put up a bit of a fight, a bit of resistance to using the shuttle for servicing, and it simply was uh, – it a relentless push by CEPI and others, including actually some welcome senior individuals at JSC who finally said, yeah, we really ought to pursue this. So apologies for the multiple questions. Your answers? Oh, okay. Well, I'm actually not sure who the, the senior administrator was. Uh, um, oh, gosh. I. I'm tempted to say George Lowe, but I think that's more a guess than anything else. And, uh, that's just, that's, uh, uh, so I better, I better just leave that at, at that. And, and actually that, that's a, that's a little bit of homework for me to do. Um, uh, because I, I, I didn't get into that, that, that part of this, the, the story in, in huge, uh, detail. Um yeah I I I think um you know a lot of the from what I could understand uh, the 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 concepts around satellite servicing at that time uh as Seppi explained it to me uh and and as as they, as they were writing about it was was this whole idea that they could build a modular spacecraft and and save money and and have modules that would be like common to various different spacecraft and that could be easily changed out on orbit using the shuttle because of course the the idea of the 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 shuttle as president nixon said was to take the you know the uh uh, astronomical costs out of, uh, uh, astronautics. I think that was the phrase. Um, so I, I think that was a lot of it. And of course, uh, uh, the, um, uh, you know, everybody had been brought up, uh, with these ideas, you know, the, 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 the things in the 1950s that, uh, Werner von Braun and people like that talked about, uh, uh where you would have spacewalking astronauts uh, uh, working on on spacecraft, and actually, one one thing I was going to make at some point in this talk was to point out, you know, that we have uh, you know robotic spacecraft, uh, and we have uh, uh, 
crewed spacecraft. You know, we used to say manned and unmanned. And, uh, but there's always been a lot of talk about, uh, uh, astronaut tended or they used to say man tended spacecraft. Um, uh, there's always a lot of talk about that, but, uh, uh, I think the best example of a, of a crew tended spacecraft is Hubble. Uh, and you, perhaps you could argue that was, that was, uh, that was the, the only one. So, yeah, some of the really deep roots of all that, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's interesting. It probably needs a, a, a bit more digging around. Uh, by uh, by my uh, 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 historian friends and myself. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. We probably need to move on. By the way, I just looked up the interview. I've got here. I've got the most recent initial quest next to me. It was George Lowe. Who, yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. We will service. Uh, future major missions will be serviced. Yes. Yeah. Because. Uh, because, yeah, he was there very early in the shuttle program. That's why I hesitated a little bit, because I knew he was gone by the time it uh, it, it uh, re- really got going. Um, so, anyway, uh, uh, I was about to turn to slide number seven, which is the, the, uh, the famous uh, spherical aberration on Hubble. Uh, um, H- Hubble had a quite a, a, a difficult commissioning period and uh, there are all sorts of, of issues uh, uh, one was that they, they they found the jitter problem right away because of the designs of the uh, of the first solar arrays which came from British Aerospace uh, one of the European uh, contributions but anyway the way they were designed is that they shook quite a bit when Hubble Move between the day side and the dark side of each orbit, and of course this happened, uh, you know, every 45, 47 minutes or so, uh, and this reduced the amount of time that Hubble could be uh, uh, imaging. So that that was a big problem. There was various other things, and um, uh, I must say that that my research uh, convinced me that uh, uh, Hubble. If Hubble had been launched in 1986, um, if there had not been uh, the, the awful loss of the, the uh, uh, Challenger, um, uh, the, the uh, Hubble mission might have been a, a, a complete failure. There were just there were a lot of problems that were still uh, hadn't been completely solved. The, uh, the there was a set of solar panels, for example, that were to go up in 1986, and they found out from uh, 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 bringing back, uh, what is it, the long-duration exposure facility and things like that, uh, that the materials on that, uh, uh, on the original set of solar panels would not last, would not have lasted very long in the environment of space being struck by atomic Oxygen. There, there was a lot of software problems and various other things, and I think it would have been, uh, if people thought they had problems in 1990, they would have been a lot worse with uh, deployment uh, in 1986. But anyway, um, they started uh, uh, taking uh, uh, images in uh, uh, in in May, and uh, uh, the very early ones. Didn't look too bad, 
but expectations were low. They actually, uh, uh, NASA and the Institute put out releases saying, well, here they are, they aren't too bad. Uh, but as time went on, uh, they realized that the, that there was something wrong. And, uh, it took people a number of weeks, um, to kind of wrap their minds around what had really happened with that the mirror was ground, precisely ground to the wrong shape. Um, and, uh, uh, and when this was announced by NASA, you know, uh, it was a, a, a really terrible time for, uh, for Hubble. And I, and I, I won't go into that. Uh, uh, you can read more about it in my book, but, uh, uh, but as soon as, as soon as that was determined, uh, people, uh, people started, uh, going to work on it. As I mentioned in this slide, we had the, uh, optical review panel and various other panels for work figuring out the exact nature of the problem and, and, and how, how it could be dealt with. Um, and, uh, and then of course, uh, as, as, uh, as Hubble got going, you know, because they did, didn't just sit there, uh, they, they did start using it. To, um, uh, the images were still better than anything that could be, uh, uh, and the other data, uh, from what could be obtained from the ground. So, uh, uh, so there was actually some useful work done during that, that time. I think my, uh, our, our friend, uh, Sally Heap was one of the first people to, uh, come up with, uh, with some interesting work. So, uh, we'll go on to the, the, uh, the next slide. A, a quick, quick question before you go on. Um, as I recall, um, when I was visiting Kodak, there was a second mirror which was iron milled by Kodak and yes. NASA chose, chose one of two, which unfortunately was the wrong one in retrospect. Um, can you make any comments on that? Cause the, the Perkin Elmer mirror was mechanically ground, as you recall, the, the, Kodak one was iron milled. That's right. You're you're right about that, and uh, and you can go and see the Kodak mirror in the Smithsonian. It's uh, it it's there. You know, I I, I won't guarantee it 100 percent because I know some of the exhibits are, are closed right now. But uh, the the last time I was there a, a year or two ago, it was there. So it was just well, the Perkin Elmer mirror was the main mirror, and. Uh, um, and, uh, so, so it would have had, it, they would have had to have a really serious problem with it, uh, before launch for the Kodak mirror to be, uh, to be put on board. And, and, you know, basically, uh, uh, as, as I said in the slide, it's a very complicated story, but, uh, when the mirror was made, which is uh, in 1981, you know, nearly uh, uh, 10 years before the, it was launched, uh, it was a time of great stress in financial and managerial stress in the program and at Perkin Elmer. And, uh, and so there was not as much oversight from NASA as there should have been. And, uh, uh, and the, the folks at Perkin Elmer cut some corners and, uh, um, and it was a problem with a testing device. Uh, and, and, uh, it didn't seem to be working the way people thought it should. It said, well, if we stick in these 30 cent washers in here, that'll fix it. 
and uh, it sure did. So anyway, that whole saga it will be in, in my book, and it's it's uh, um, uh, so I'm going to go on to the solution though, um, and uh, uh, you know when they discovered this problem, there could have been all sorts of things. And for example, if they didn't, if they weren't able to determine the mirror's exact shape. They wouldn't be able to do much with it, but they were able to do that. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and actually even, even before that, uh, the problem was announced to the public, uh, a, a big part of the solution was already in play. Now, uh, uh, Ed Weiler, uh, who, who uh, was involved in various roles in in running the Hubble program over the years? Early on, had decided that the the main camera on uh, on Hubble, uh, the uh, wide field planetary camera, they should probably start as soon as possible to build a backup uh, for it in case there was a, a problem with it. Um, you know, it was kind of a marquee instrument, at least in the eyes of the public. And so uh, in 1983 or 1984, uh, uh, he had the folks at uh, JPL, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, start to work on it. And and so in, in uh, 1990, when the spherical aberration was discovered, and some of the first uh, people who kind of – started to think about, well, what do we do now? We're people at JPL. They realized, well, if they could uh, uh, engineer the second uh, uh, camera with PIC-2 so that it would compensate for the uh, spherical aberration. So that got going fairly quickly. Uh, but there's also, well, there's all those other instruments there. What do we do about those? Uh, because we can't change out all the instruments in one servicing mission. and uh, and there's all sorts of ideas uh, going around. And the Institute, uh, I think it was a very difficult time at Goddard, you know, particularly because they were just they were just kind of handed the keys uh, to uh, Hubble as all this was going on. Um, uh, people at the Institute uh, pulled a panel together and they looked at roughly 20 ideas, which various things, you know, send a – uh, uh, you know, have an astronaut go down the, the, inside the, uh, the, the telescope and, and do something with the mirror. And Bruce McCandless was on that panel and kiboshed that idea. But anyway, the, uh, the, the solution that was eventually, uh, worked out involved taking out one of the instruments, uh, which, uh, turned out to be the high, high speed photometer. Um, and putting in another uh, instrument, for want of a better term, called COSTAR, which contained uh, 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 tiny little mirrors, you know, not much bigger than a quarter, uh, that uh, that would be moved into the light path coming from the telescope, and the mirrors would be shaped to compensate for the spherical aberration and allow the remaining three instruments there to uh, operate properly. So uh, so the beauty of that is that it could be just changed out like a normal uh, instrument. And uh, um, so uh, anyway, uh, 
the uh, uh, the work began for the first servicing mission, which is already uh, planned for 1993 sometime. Uh, uh, the uh, on Endeavor and uh, um, and uh, by then NASA was in a whole world of pain for various other things. Various other things were going wrong. And that servicing mission really had to work because if 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 it failed, it uh, some people thought NASA itself could be at stake. So uh, the uh, the the uh, EVA crew for that mission was uh, chosen uh, quite early. Uh, uh, Story Musgrave was uh, basically in in charge of that part of the mission, and. Uh, and they did a lot of training in the uh, in the tanks at Marshall. They still didn't have this the Sunny Carter facility and its huge water tanks yet at uh, Johnson. So they uh, trained in the wet F at Johnson and also the bigger tank at uh, at Marshall. And they spent uh, uh, seven uh, seven hundred thirty eight hours training in uh, in those tanks. It was Musgrave, Thomas Akers, uh, uh, K T Thornton, and uh, Jeff Hoffman who. Who prepared for that mission, and uh, uh, and that mission was just uh, you know reviewed to death. They had a they appointed a mission director for the first time in the shuttle program. They had a backup EVA astronaut ready in case there were any issues. Um, but there was a whole lot of other things that had to be worked on in that uh, in that mission. Um, so. Uh, 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 it was actually just uh, quite a quite a uh, uh, an enormous effort. Um, uh, I think we'll just take a look at the next slide, number nine, and uh, just a, a part of the a part of the war preparation that's often forgotten is that, uh, 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 and this involved. Uh, People at uh, at Johnson and and Kennedy uh, Kennedy Space Center and of course uh, Goddard was uh, preparing the the equipment for the uh, for the missions. You had uh, at the at the back there you can see the uh, the flight support system which uh, which supported the space uh, supported Hubble while it was. Uh, in the payload bay, and it could be rotated around, and it contained uh, electrical and other connections uh, to to the shuttle. Um, and then you had the various carriers, which were usually different for each mission, depending on uh, on what uh, uh, what the what work had to be done in in that in that mission. So there was a, a huge amount of uh, work there done for that. And uh, anyway, the, uh, that mission was a, a, a huge success. They they had uh, the four EVA astronauts were in uh, in in uh, uh, divided into teams of two, and uh, they had five different EVAs. So one team did three EVAs, another team did. Uh, did uh, two EVAs, and originally uh, the idea was, oh well, we'd only do two EVAs on each uh, each mission. But uh, uh, as the time drew nearer, they 
they uh, realized, well, hey, we're going to have to do four EVAs, and then they finally agreed to do five because there was so much work to do on that mission. They had to change out the gyros, as I said, change out the solar panels uh, and, and those instruments, and there was, there was a huge amount of work that had to be done. Actually, uh, there was a huge amount of work that had to be done on every servicing mission. Uh, we'll go to slide 10. So this covers the next three servicing missions, uh, which uh, sometimes uh, get forgotten uh, in kind of a, in, in the rush of events. But uh, each one was kind of a, a distinct uh, uh, mission, uh, and uh, uh, certainly a huge amount of uh, uh, preparation went into each one. You know, servicing mission two. Uh, and Joe Tanner, who is on that mission, is with us today. Uh, uh, most people refer to that as kind of a, uh, uh, an upgrade mission. Uh, they installed a fine guidance uh, uh, sensor, a, a new one, and, and uh, took another one out and, uh, and, uh, and changed out uh, a couple more instruments, uh, uh, STIS and, and NICMOS. And I think... In, in, in some ways, uh, servicing mission one, uh, two was was kind of uh, a, a, as close as you would get to what people envisioned a, a servicing mission uh, would be. Do, do you want to say anything, Joe? <coughs> I guess. I guess. No, I, thought, I couldn't find the mute button. <laughs> no, we we. Uh... Uh, we were kind of stressed on that one because, uh, you know, the telescope was sort of working okay when, before we launched, and uh, we were doing a, enough upgrades that if it wasn't working when we got done, it was going to be our fault. So uh, we were real happy whenever the, all the aliveness tests worked and, and the telescope was in better shape after we left. Yes. Um And actually, there's a, there's a fourth mission here uh, in this slide. Uh, STS-95 Discovery, which was kind of a grab bag mission, uh, various uh, various things, but it, it, it included a, a package of equipment from uh, uh, from Hubble to be tested, uh, and uh, uh, the the uh, original cryo cooler on uh, on Nikmos, which is an infrared uh, uh, instrument. Uh, which needs to operate very low uh, temperatures, uh, had only very limited life uh, because of a thermal short in it. So a new cooler, uh, a cryo-cooler system was developed, and they wanted to test it in space before they actually installed it on Hubble. And then they decided that uh, that Hubble, which had a, a, essentially a 386 computer chip on it, uh, needed the blazing power of a four, 486, so they tested that. Now, STS-95, uh, everybody will remember that mission because one of the mission specialists uh, on board were, or, um, or was even a mission specialist. Anyway, uh, one of the people on that flight was a fellow named John Glenn. Um, uh, so I don't think he was involved with the uh, Hubble work, though. Um, and then we're coming up to servicing mission three, uh, and uh, and what happened is that the gyroscopes, which are kind of always the uh, the uh, 
<laughs> a weak point in Hubble started to fail. Um, so they uh, they decided to split servicing mission three into two missions, and uh, uh, servicing mission three was quite a uh, dramatic story because uh, that year, 1999, there was a whole series of issues uh, with the with the shuttle and uh, with the shuttle program with that particular mission, and and of course. Uh, 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 at the end of the year, we were turning over to 2000, and there was a, a everybody was concerned about a thing called the Y2K bug. Uh, and of course, in the days of uh, coronavirus, that seems pretty trivial, but it was a big concern back then. So it was absolutely imperative that uh, that uh, uh, um, SM3A get off uh, and get back to Earth before the end of the year. Uh, uh, otherwise, uh, it would be probably a, a long, there would be a, another delay. And the gyroscopes, most of them had failed by that point. And, and, and Hubble, I think, was, um, was in or close to being put into, into safe mode. So anyway, they did get it up. They almost, they came within a whisker of canceling it. They got it off and, uh, and it was, it was, uh, you know, there was no instruments really changed aside from a fine guidance sensor, uh, but it was uh, uh, installing that computer that had been tested uh, uh, the, the year before and the new gyroscopes. And then the, the rest of the work and, and some more um, were, uh, uh, was done on servicing mission 3B, which was the uh, – uh, uh, Columbia mission in uh, uh, March of 2012. Uh, they uh, uh, replaced the faint object camera with the advanced camera for surveys. The third set of solar arrays. Uh, these were uh, these were actually built by uh, Lockheed Martin for Iridium, and they were smaller uh, and more efficient than the uh, you know because of the passage of time than the uh, than the uh, uh, previous arrays. So, uh, just, uh, 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 an important comment was that as time went on, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're getting out, uh, uh, beyond, uh, the, uh, contemplated lifetime for, uh, uh, for Hubble and things needed to be changed out that they didn't plan to actually change and, and people, uh, like uh, uh, Frank Zeppelina's team at Goddard uh, uh, did some amazing work just uh, developing tools to to help the uh, help the astronauts uh, change out uh, uh, equipment. You know, some of it involving taking out a hundred screws and making sure you didn't lose the screws and things like this. And of course. Uh, if you want to set yourself a challenge as, 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 uh, as Joe and, and, uh, and perhaps even somebody like Bonnie Dunbar could tell us, you know, try, try doing some of this fine work while you're in a pressurized, uh, spacesuit. Uh, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty tough work. Uh, uh, so the, the next slide, uh, I think this is 11 is just, uh, just a little a schematic of what went on in all the, uh, in all the servicing missions. Um, so 
so you can look at that at your leisure, and we'll move on to servicing mission four, the, the fifth and last servicing mission. Uh, this had uh, an incredible uh, – the story of this mission is uh, is really something because after the loss of Columbia in 2003, in the, the Columbia flight following the uh, uh, servicing mission 3B, uh, uh, there was uh, a new emphasis placed on on safety and and basically the the shuttle uh, after Columbia was dedicated to uh, working in the International Space Station and there if you ran into a situation like what happened in the uh, the Columbia disaster uh, the astronauts had a place to go the space station but um, you didn't you didn't have that option with uh with Hubble because it's in quite a different orbit. And I know that you could see movies like Gravity, I think it was, where they went from the station to uh Hubble, but that just wasn't on. And so it there was a a, a great deal of danger. And uh uh so Sean O'Keefe, then the administrator, cancelled servicing mission four. That was very controversial. Um I think uh in working on on that uh you know he was concerned about the safety uh the safety issues that had been in, uh uh identified by the Columbia Accident Investigation Board but also about the the time that be that would be required to uh to get that mission up uh with whatever changes would be made so uh Anyway, I discussed that in, in some depth in, in, in the book. So during that time, uh, uh, NASA thought about, um, well, what about uh, launching a robotic servicing mission? And, and the idea was to take the, uh, uh, the Dexter robot, which is uh, being developed by McDonald, Detweiler, and Associates in Canada. And then, of course, uh, now it's part of... Uh, um, Maxar, although I think it's being spun off, uh, uh, um, and they were building Dexter, which, uh, up here in Canada is called the Canada Hand, and it was going to be attached to the mobile servicing system on the space station, which it eventually was, and it would get to the, uh, uh, to Hubble on board a, a kind of a bus spacecraft that, uh, uh, Lockheed Martin was uh, going to work on. Uh, but, uh, as, as 2004 went on, uh, it became clear that the, the cost would be really, uh, astronomical. And, uh, there was always the time element, uh, and, uh, and just, you know, still questions about feasibility. But, uh, uh, you know, I can say that this got some people thinking about you know robotic servicing, so I think it helped advance advance that idea a little bit. Uh, at the end of that year, uh, 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 Sean O'Keefe uh, uh, left NASA, and Mike Griffin came in and, and uh, went through quite a, a long review of servicing Mission Four, and eventually opted to uh, to go ahead with it. Uh, and uh, so that uh, that mission. Uh, ultimately launched in, uh, in May of 2009, 
And this is another situation where a lot of the gyroscopes were, were failing and, and, uh, uh, there was another major failure. I just, I can't remember right off the top of my head what it was. It was supposed to actually be launched in late 2008 and they put it off for a few months because, uh, uh, uh without this additional repair, the other ones wouldn't be that meaningful. And, uh, so anyway, um, that mission went off and, uh, uh, and it was extremely ambitious. There was a lot of work, uh, some of it involving the uh, things that weren't contemplated uh, uh, for repair. And uh, and uh, the crew of that mission uh, pulled it off. So that uh, uh, that was the uh, that was the last uh, servicing mission because the shuttle program ended and and. So now we're about, uh, what, nearly 11 years out from that mission and, uh, uh, and Hubble is still operating. The longest it had been between servicing missions before that was seven years and it was at death's door when that, that, that mission was launched. So its operation right now is, uh, is, is quite remarkable. A big reason for that was that, uh, upgraded, uh, gyroscopes were put on board uh so uh so that's that's uh that's one reason uh i think we'll uh uh there's there's a a a photograph from servicing mission four and you can see an astronaut uh uh uh, working the telescope from the end of the uh uh remote manipulator system uh and you can see some of the uh 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 Things in the uh, payload bay containing uh, 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 replacement equipment. Um, so to uh, to to to, to uh, uh, wrap it up, so we're uh, a a fixture was put on board. Uh, uh, was attached to the bottom of Hubble, and uh, so. Uh, NASA is mandated to uh, launch a deorbiting mission so that uh, Hubble, which is as big as a school bus, doesn't come crashing down like Skylab did. Uh, and uh, but uh, uh, most estimates uh, have it re- remaining in orbital attitude in orbit until the 2030s. Uh, it has no way to raise its orbit. We, what happened is that. When it was attached to the shuttle during servicing missions, the uh, the crews would uh, would raise the orbit with Hubble, and uh, but that option uh, hasn't been exercised. But anyway, there is kind of a vague idea. Well, we'll build some sort of robotic spacecraft that will uh, dock with that fixture and either uh, uh, put Hubble into a higher graveyard orbit or uh, or deorbit it. Um, but, uh, uh, I think, uh, you can, you can see the, the, the main points, you know, the EVAs just require an incredible amount of, uh, preparation and, and, and work and attention to detail. And, uh, as I mentioned before, you can't rely on the, uh, on the, uh, engineering drawings. You really have to be sure that, uh, yeah, the uh, the things that 
join up with uh, that you grapple a, a spacecraft with or put into a spacecraft or attach to a spacecraft that they actually fit. Um, the um, uh, the work that went into uh, into uh, these servicing missions uh, and the lessons learned were applied for the construction of the ISS. I think the construction of the ISS is just a remarkable success, and I think a lot of it uh, is uh, is due to the work that was done on Hubble servicing. And I and and I think it's embodied in this call because uh, you know Joe Tanner, who's with us uh, here, after after he uh, worked on uh, on Hubble and servicing mission two, he went on to. Uh, 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 be one of the people who helped construct uh, the uh, International Space Station. And uh, so uh, if you don't believe me, you can ask him. Uh, and uh, uh, so anyway, the, uh, the ultimate outcome of this beyond the ISS is still, uh, it still kind of remains to be seen. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, at, at Goddard, uh, uh, the uh, the group that uh, was headed by Frank Seppelina for a long time, uh, Seppi is retired now, although I'm sure he's still around Goddard a lot, uh, is uh, is now known as the Satellite Servicing Proce- Projects Division, and I know they are working uh, they're working on a, on a, a number of ideas for uh, uh, servicing. Uh, servicing satellites and uh uh i think so, some of them for the uh for the department of uh, defense and uh so uh um we'll, it just it remains to be seen what comes out of that and of course earlier uh a few weeks ago we had the uh a very interesting development where a, a, a private spacecraft that i think uh uh was uh um, uh, Northrop Grumman, if I remember right, was launched and, and docked with a uh, communications uh, satellite and is going to uh, uh, provide fuel for it for a few years. So there, uh, but the ultimate outcome remains to be seen. So I think uh, I will leave it there. The, my last slide, number 15, has, uh, has uh, a, a couple of uh, reference books uh, uh, if you want to read some more about this. So thank you very much. Well, that's a wrap on this podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca. I read and answer all your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space, and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook. Regardless of which app you use to listen to us, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate our podcast and write a review. Of course, that's only if you like us. Your rating and review will help us in getting the podcast widely listened to. And hey, if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq. Lastly, if you haven't listened to the latest episode of our new podcast, Terranauts, what are you waiting for? Host Ian Christie is a natural interviewer who knows how to tease good stories from those who work every day in space but don't go to space. 
Terranauts is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite app. Listen to it now. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.